BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who wants to know, Hey, Mr. Musk, where's my blue check mark? Here is the captain. Well, I would settle for a ride on your rocket, but that sounds a little strange. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling us, friend. This week in the garage, we are featuring Eternal Autumn, brewed by the great folks at Track 7 Brewing Company. This is a West Coast-style I to the P to the A with notes of pineapple, mango, and papaya garage grade. Five out of five bottle caps. And before we dive back into this week's case, let's send a cheers to our friends at Dapper Dog and Whispering Pines, North Carolina, and to wonderful Suzanne from Sunderland, Maryland. Thank you both for your contributions. To make a donation to the Beer Fund, just click on the donate button on the website, truecrimegarage.com, or if you'd like to help out the show and get something nice for yourself or someone you love, check out our store page. Yeah, B-W-E-R-U-N, Beer Run. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks so much for telling a friend. Make sure you're following us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all those things at True Crime Garage. And that is enough of the business. All right, everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. Well, it goes without saying, Captain, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's obvious. The detectives were eager to talk to a one David Seelock, and they did so first 
on November 8th, 1992. And in that conversation, in that interview, David told police that he knew Tracy since grade school. They had gone way back. And then they reconnected a couple months earlier prior to her death when he had ran into her at her mother and stepfather's bar. The name of the bar is the Village Pub. He says and tells detectives that he moved in with Tracy for a short period of just a couple of weeks, but they broke up and he moved out of Tracy's apartment two weeks prior to her murder. He said that they broke up because he felt bad that he still had feelings for his ex, Janet. And you'll remember from our last episode that it was a little more than just an ex-girlfriend, ex-boyfriend situation between David and Janet. They had been together for seven years and had two kids together. Tracy, it seems like everybody is in agreement of what went down and how this relationship between Tracy and David fell apart because he tells detectives, look, I, I broke it off because I felt bad that I still had feelings for my ex, Janet. Tracy is telling friends that she was tired of David being in constant contact with his ex and even hanging out at Janet's house all of the time. The former girlfriend is Janet Crago, who was age 23 back in 1992. Yeah, it'd be an uncomfortable situation where you're seeing somebody and they have to go to their ex's house every single day. Well, this is one of those things that's difficult, right? Because Tracy needs to be in constant contact with her ex regarding their child. Right. But it's unacceptable to her to have David be in constant contact with his ex regarding their children. I can see Tracy's side of this. Right. Because what we have here is David, who doesn't work very often. Real winner. And he's probably at his ex, Janet's beck and call. And we know this to be true because... He's going back daily to watch the children. And I could see how that would be very unsettling. Yeah. And you're young, you're a little emotionally immature, and you don't know what's going on behind closed doors. Exactly. If you are, you're now rooming with someone who is going on the daily back to their ex's house. And you don't know what's going on during that time. But again, we have these young adults trying to make their way through this difficult world. When we talk about people in their early 20s being young and dumb, I swear, a lot of them still have that soft spot on their head. That's how that's how young and undeveloped we all are at that time. Now, let's dive into this relationship between Janet and David. So but we were also young and dumb at one point, and we're still probably really stupid. I'm wearing a helmet to protect the soft spot on my, <laughs> my head right now. Detectives notes indicate that David and Janet broke up several times over the course of their seven years together. And some of those breakups were due to what Janet reports to police as David's violent temper. She says that he had assaulted her on several occasions and that he had cheated on her multiple times over the course of that seven years. Janet said that he hit her on occasion and has given her several black eyes and a head injury. Now, you hit a woman, you're a loser. We need to be super clear about this. This is Janet's statement. This is what she is saying. We don't have confirmation of this in the form of the, the courts or law enforcement because 
She openly expressed to detectives that she refused to press charges against David, but multiple people attested to seeing Janet with black eyes at some point. Right. She says that those black eyes came from David. We can't say, we can't sit here and 100% say that that is truth and fact. We can only report what has been reported to police. You decipher, you decide for yourself. Now, Janet says that on the occasions that David would cheat on her, there was at least one occasion where she would go and confronted the other girl or the other woman. But either way, to me, one, the relationships are not worth it. But two, you're putting yourself in a dangerous situation. Right. So we got this weird situation of, you know, Tracy on more than one occasion finds herself in a relationship with a guy who may just be out of a relationship, may still be in a relationship, and she doesn't mind going and confronting the other woman. But then we have the reverse of that on this same side where Janet doesn't mind in going and confronting the person that her boyfriend might be running around with. All these individuals would make great guests on the Jerry Springer show. So the short of it, Captain, is... Tracy and David start this relationship. David is kicked out of his place that he lives with. Janet goes to stay with Tracy for a period of roughly two or so weeks. Eventually, Tracy and David end their little relationship as well, because we have David who is continually going back to Janet's to watch the children and help out. So it's a messy situation, but it looks like it's in the process of being cleaned up. However, this is just a like two weeks before the murder of Tracy Harkness. The thing here is, I'm not going to lie, I was incredibly suspicious of Janet, and I can see all the reasons to have a motive here. Right, I agree. Maybe there was some kind of interaction, some kind of confrontation between the two that got out of hand. Look. You don't have to, we should point this out. There does not have to be a plan for murder for there to be a murder. The, the intent doesn't have to be homicide. The intent could be, oh, I went over there to talk things out with her or to discuss the situation with her. And we ended up in a knockdown drag out. This unfortunately is the result. And now we need to get justice for our victim here, according to Janet, oh Janet, she says that her and Tracy actually had a couple of talks um, that were not as heated as one might anticipate. And again, while I was very suspicious of Janet, or maybe Janet in, I don't see a situation where Janet and David do this together unless they completely went off the rails, right? But Janet tells the cops that she was fine with the situation that her and David were over and she's fine with the situation. And while I don't know that that is true, right? I can only base it, my opinion off of what I see in the notes and how it's described to us. But I really get the feeling. I mean, we've all been there, right? Where you're just kind of done with somebody. Yeah. I'm looking at them and you're, I don't know about everybody else out there. I just kind of become numb to whatever they do or say. Like, I just don't care at some point. I don't really have any feelings or emotion about it. Once I'm able to move on from somebody, I don't know what Janet's situation is other than she's saying, 
me and him are done. That was the end of it. And there's, but my gut feeling tells me that like, I believe her. I believe that it's over. Well, it all points to this crime of passion. So it's like, oh, you're trying to take my man. Okay. I'm going to go over here and confront you. Gets out of hand. I murder you. And now I don't want the man. You know, you just did this horrible crime to be with him. And now you don't even want to be with him. So I, I, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, and I don't know if this is Janet trying to throw David under the bus. And I am in complete agreement with you. If, if the relationship is over, over, then the obvious motive for Janet to be the prime suspect is kind of gone by that point. Now there could be some things beneath the surface that we are unaware of, but the, the weird reaction that we have here is that when police first go out to find David, it's Janet that they encounter because they know where these two live. And when they first encounter Janet, she's busy. She's in the act of walking groceries in from her car to their home or their apartment. I, I can't recall if it's a home or apartment, but police are very blunt with Janet. They say, hey, we're here to talk to David and you because Tracy Harkness has been killed. And Janet's reaction, according to the police, is, oh, David killed, you know, something to the effect of, did David kill her or David killed her? Something like that, where she reacts and puts David right in the driver's seat of being the perpetrator of this homicide. Now, as weird as that sounds, we should point out that if you are phrasing a question or presenting to somebody as we're here to talk to David because this person was murdered, right? I think the natural reaction from anybody would be, they must be talking to him because he's involved or they came and sought him out because he's involved. Right. She's just implying what, why they would need to talk to him. But also if it's true that he was physically abusive, then she knows that this douchebag is capable of harming a woman of possibly murdering a woman. Right. And I just go out of my way to say that in fairness to David, not that I see any reason for me to try to be fair to him, but I, I don't know him. I wasn't there at the situation. All I can say 100% is you have, these accusations of domestic violence, you have evidence that suggests that those accusations are probably correct, but we don't have anything definitive saying this guy was convicted of domestic violence. Right. So in fairness to him, I think we bring it up that way. Now, the thing here though, too, is it's David that police want to talk to. We got all this information from Janet. Oh, Janet but it's David that they really want to talk to. And they do get the opportunity to speak with David on several occasions. But I would see why after talking to Janet, people would be suspicious of her. I mean, I see a lot of reasons to be suspicious of Janet, but also reasons to not be. And a big part of that, my mind keeps going back to the idea that a couple days after the murder, when they go to speak with David and Janet, David is not currently living at Janet's. And we have information that states clearly that David was in the process of trying to get back with Janet and Janet telling police that, look, it's over and done. I'm, I've moved on. That's somewhat backed up by the fact that he's not currently living there when they go to speak with him. That's a very good point. Let's go through a portion of an interview between the lead detective and David Seelock. And here's an excerpt from one of those interviews. And it's Detective Robinette says, what do you think about all of this? Of course, he's meaning the murder. Right. 
Seelock's answer is, I don't know why someone would do it. Robinette, you don't have any clue? David responds, she didn't bother anybody. She would never yell at people or antagonize someone to do something like that. That's a bit of a weird statement to me because I can see her putting herself in harm's way a little bit when she's uh, confronting exes or what have you. And she's clearly not running around in the best of circles with some of these friends anyway. But I think what he's trying to say, let's pretend, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, right? Innocent until proven guilty. He's never been charged with anything in this matter. He may simply be saying, if he's innocent, he may simply be saying she would never yell at people or antagonize someone to do something like that, something this extreme, that they would have that extreme of a reaction to their interaction together. A little more about that interview. The detective asks, what have you heard about Tracy's death? To which David replies, just what I've seen on the news. Someone forced their way in or something, and she had been hit with a big object. The detective asks, when you were living there with Tracy, how was she about locking up? Answer, oh, she always locked the door. She always made sure. Question, did she have a key made for you? Answer, I had a key, but I gave it back to her. Again, if that's correct, I mean, he's not hiding the fact that he did at one time have a key. The big question then becomes, where the hell is that key? Why wasn't it found in the apartment? And if it wasn't, you know, since they did not find it in the apartment, who has it? And could it be this man? And could he have been lying about giving that key back? We don't know. My problem is the keys are never found in her apartment. And I don't know where else she would place those keys. And the fact that they never turn back up makes me lean towards the idea that David just never gave the keys back. But now it's possible that that he is not responsible for this murder at all, but he just lied to cops and said, or lied to everybody and said, well, I did give her back these keys because he didn't want to look more suspicious. The interview continues. Question, would the same key fit the front and the back door? Answer, I don't know. I never used the front door. Tracy always used the back. Now, remember, he didn't live there for a very long period of time. So it's reasonable to believe that that he never used the front door, or at least never used the key to gain access to the front door. It would have been great to be a fly on the wall during this interview or interrogation, however you, however you want to view it. And then he is asked if Janet would have gone out to Tracy's apartment to confront her or to say something to her, or does he believe that she would have done anything to her? To which he responds, no, Janet's not that type of person. Well, fascinating answer because they just lobbed up. It's a softball. They put the ball on the tee and you can hit a home run because if he was guilty of this, this would be a great way to point the finger at somebody else. Do you think Janet could be responsible for this? Is she capable? Oh, yeah, she's capable pointing the finger somewhere else. There's your scapegoat, right? If you're guilty and she doesn't know anything that that what you may be guilty of, that being Janet, there's your softball of, yeah. Yeah. She was... She was as crazy as they come. I, I could totally see a situation where she would go out there and confront Tracy. That shit crazy. But he he doesn't take advantage of that. Either he's too dumb or he doesn't see the opportunity or he has no reason to have a scapegoat. The weird thing about that answer, though, too, though, Captain, is no, 
actually, that's not a great answer because we know of at least one occasion prior to this where she did confront someone that he had run around on her with. So it's that whole, I, I say, take that with a grain of salt because we just can't figure out or make heads or tails of who is responsible for this homicide based off of some of this information. Now, one thing that we need to really focus in on is let's get back. Let's get away from these, these characters here and get more into the timeline because it doesn't matter if you sit here and look at this thing and say, all right, I I could see a motive for one, two, three, four, five of these different characters to have a motive to kill Tracy Harkness motive doesn't matter. You could, you could have a whole long line of people that dislike the victim. Well, there's a lot of people in this circle that you can find motives for, but it's like, did they have the opportunity? Were they even in the area? We have a timeline that is not going to where we have detectives saying that other individuals, if I had to rule someone out, it would be him, not David. It would be Michael because of the alibis, because of his timeline. Let's look at the timeline for David Seelock. So Janet kicks him out roughly on October 1st. Right. And then later we know that Tracy, their relationship ended as well. And so after their relationship ended, which is supposed to be weeks before the murder, we have David Seelock who is staying at his friend's home ran this man's name is randy and he's sleeping on randy's couch and this is going on for approximately two to three weeks leading up to the murder now on that thursday which is the the important date here in our timeline that thursday november 5th 1992 the day in question according to the timeline david arrived at janet's house remember he's going over there daily to watch the kids take a shower do some laundry things like that he arrives at Janet's house around 11 a.m., like every other day. He says that they had an argument because he wanted to move back in. She says no. He says during the course of this argument, he headbutted the wall. Oh, that's smart. And so when detectives are speaking with him, he has visible cuts and bruises on his head. That's fishy. Now, either he's telling the truth and he headbutted the wall during this argument, or these could be Mark's and cuts that he has on him because he attacked someone. It's very fishy. Janet backs up this portion of the story that David headbutted the wall and says that he did have some scratches on his forehead afterwards, and at least one of the scratches was bleeding. The police, when they interview him, of course, they're taking photos of this injuries, these, these head and facial injuries that, that he has. Yeah. Or this dumbass gets into argument with Janet runs his head into a wall, and then later that night commits the crime. Both could be true at the same time. Exactly. Both could be true. Or the other thing that we, of course, everybody's going to want to know is when did these injuries actually appear? Even with Janet backing up this portion of the story, when did these injuries first appear? Now, it it looks like going through all of the reports that Janet is not the only person that reported to police or told police that they had witnessed these scratches or injuries to David prior to the murder, 
prior to Thursday night. Afterwards, after this fight, after he headbutts the wall, because that's always that's always the smartest thing to do in any situation. Just headbutt the wall. Genius. Right. He says that he left Janet's. Uh, this would have been around 3.10 p.m. that Thursday afternoon. He went to work and only stayed until about 6.15 p.m. He says he left early or asked to leave early because he had a headache. This presumably from headbutting the wall. Well, I guess the wall won. Police did confirm that he was at work for that period of time, for that three hours and five minutes that day, based off of speaking with his employer and verifying the timesheets of that day. So after that, he says he goes back to Janet's. They talk for a little bit. And then from there, he goes to Stony Frazier's house. Stony Boner. So this is a good friend of his. And he says that he's at his buddy's house around 630. He went there for the purpose of borrowing a pool cue. A lot of these individuals that, that are involved in this mess shot pool regularly. They played in these pool tournaments and in these pool leagues, billiard leagues. So around 645, he says he's walking into the village pub where he shot pool, he says, for maybe 45 minutes or so. Sometime after 7 p.m., he said that he and some other guys on a pool team walked to Friendly's. This is a different bar where they're going to go shoot pool. This was for an actual pool tournament that was scheduled for that evening. It's amazing how much this guy does and how many hobbies he has when he doesn't have a job. Now, there are reports from several people that are at this Friendly's bar that David Seelock was not so friendly while he was there because there's several reports of him being one, very drunk, and two, quite pissed off. Yeah, he was drunk in public. I don't know when the aggravation or where he became obviously angry or pissed off to the other patrons of the bar. But one thing that did go down, and this is reported by several people that were at the bar that night, that David Seelock started yelling at someone on the phone. So apparently he was trying to play for money. Right. He's trying to play for like a hundred bucks. Right. And because we talked about his sketchy work history, he, look, this guy doesn't have the hundred bucks to put up for his own game. <laughs> of course. He so he's drunk. He's trying to borrow this money or get somebody to back him in this game. And of course, nobody's willing to back him. And that's when he it's the reports come from him being angry with people at the bar. Again, it's hard to say how angry was he before this all happened. I think this is just a situation where he's it's snowballing, right? He was pissed off when he walked in there and he got more angry that things weren't going his way. The thing that's weird though, is there are several reports uh, that say that he was on the phone and he could, he was overheard on the phone. Now, nobody knows who he was talking to, but he's calling the person a bitch multiple times during this phone conversation and yelling at whoever it is he's on the phone with him. This guy's a pretend tough guy. Now, we do need to point out something here, though, that this person, whoever he was talking to, it's highly unlikely that it was Tracy that he's talking to. Because remember, she is at the lingerie party until 1030 p.m. So unless he managed to call her at this party. Right and get her on the phone. And then later, nobody at the party report that she took a call that she's getting yelled at. Definitely seems like something people would remember this. She, he's talking to somebody else in my mind, not Tracy. 
Yeah, I agree with you. It makes more sense. Exactly. There's no evidence of that, and it doesn't make any sense either because she wasn't even home at the time. So, again, for him to be talking to Tracy, he would have had to call the party that she's at. We have no indication he would have known the phone number, and we have zero persons at that party saying that Tracy took a phone call at the party or that she got upset because somebody was yelled at her on the phone. There's zero indication that he was talking to Tracy. Is there any evidence of who he's talking to? I have no idea who he was talking to, and it doesn't look like police had an idea of who he was talking to either. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. You'll step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Use your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery danger, and romance, and customize your very own luxurious estate island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. Collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. And you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. All right, we are back. Cheers, everybody. And cheers to you, Colonel. Cheers to all the people in the back. Cheers to all the people at Friendly's Bar, as we discussed. Maybe not everybody's so friendly at the bar. But the key thing here, Captain, the crucial moment that we really need to discuss in our timeline here is we have David Seelock, who says, 
that he stayed at Friendly's Bar until 10.30, 11, or maybe 11.30 p.m. that night. Okay. 10.30, 11, maybe 11.30 that night. However, we have multiple people at the bar that say no. He left before that. He left. So we have a few different opinions on what time he left or what time he was last seen by these different people at Friendly's Bar. But some people have him leaving the bar as early as 9. Some people have him leaving the bar as late as 10.15. Nobody in the reports has him leaving any later than 10.15. Not 10.30, not 11, not 11.30 like he says. That's a problem because you are, one, lying to law enforcement, but two, you're essentially trying to establish an alibi. If he knows what time the victim was killed. Yes, that's correct. So what we have here is his timeline is not matching up with the witnesses, the people at the bar. David Seelock says, you know, regardless of what time he left the bar, he says that he returned to Janet's that night walking there from Friendly's bar. Now, I don't know the distance between those two locations, but I'm guessing that they're rather close. Everywhere that he talked about going leading up to Friendly's bar, he's on foot anyway. So I'm imagining that all this stuff is pretty close together. Now, in Janet's interview, she says that she's not real sure what time David Seelock arrived at her place after playing pool that night. Of course not. She originally says maybe 8 or 9 p.m. Okay, so that doesn't really match up with what he's saying, and that doesn't match up with what people at the bar are saying. Very frustrating. It would be very frustrating for law enforcement. She does say that she, she later says that she is uncertain. Uh-huh. To be clear, she's uncertain of what time he showed up. That, when, when asked of what time to give, that she needed to provide a time, that's her gut reaction. Maybe 8 or 9 o'clock, but does go on to say that she's not certain what time he arrives. Other than, she says, I know that the kids were still up when he got there, and I was busy cleaning the house when he arrives. Now, Janet says that she believes that David was at her home from 9 to 12.30, so after midnight that night. We do have another person who is there as well. And it's a little confusing to me if this person 100% backed up the times that are provided. But this person's name is listed. And because I cannot confirm if they gave a statement that they witnessed David Seelock there and present and accounted for from 9 to 1230, I'm not going to give out their name. Here's the problem, though. Even if they did give that statement, which I've not seen, let's say they did give a statement backing up and confirming the 9 to 12.30 p.m. Uh-huh. How much weight do you give that statement provided that you have multiple people? I'm not talking about one or two or three people. I'm talking about a minimum of six people that were at the bar, and none of them have him leaving in time to be there at 9 p.m. Right. at Janet's house at 9 p.m. Right. It, and even his own words. I stayed till 10.30, 11, 11.30. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't go with what other people witnessed at the bar. So his whole timeline is all jacked up. And that's not good when you find yourself on a short list of persons of interest in a homicide investigation. Where is he claiming that he went after? 
Right, because he's we know that he's not allowed to stay at Janet's. So my guess is he probably goes back there. I do believe that he went back there at some point because we have a, another person, the, the man that he was staying with, his friend Randy, says that he picked up David Seelock from Janet's home around midnight or received a call around midnight to go and pick him up. It seems like none of their stories line up. He says up. he then picked them up and then he along with Randy and two other persons, they went to Meyer. Well, it's a great time to get produce. I believe this was the Meyer located on Bryce road at the time. And they went there just to pick up a few things to where David purchased gum and cigarettes. Now police would later find a receipt for this purchase. And Randy is saying that he returned David to Janet's home around 1.15 after going to the Meyer. Now, Randy would then go and drop off the other two people that were with them, and then he circled back, picked up David from Janet's, and then they returned to Randy's house where they both fell asleep watching TV. Yeah. Something doesn't feel right about that story, but... No. All those people, though... If their time frame is just off by a little bit, it still puts them on the east side of Columbus, which is a good 30 minutes or so away from the murder scene. That's correct. Now, the only things that I'm saying happen for certain here is that I believe that at some point after shooting pool, I believe that David did go to Janet's house. Now, was that at was that at uh, closer to 10 o'clock? Like, you know, or... It, none of it adds up. Depending on who you talk to, you check it with the next person in line and the times don't add up. Well, telling time is hard. Janet's times don't match David's times. David's times don't match Janet's times. David's times don't match the people at the bar's times. It's all very wonky. And then you could say that maybe some of Randy's times match up with, with Janet's times. But really, what I feel like we have here and I feel very confident saying this. Right. It looks to me like we might have a two-hour window of where this person is unaccounted for. And then not only that, you throw in some weird things, too. You can already see reasons not to believe everything that everybody is saying when all these times don't match up, right? Right. So let's throw this weird thing in there. That we have the statement that... David brought a pool cue with him to go to Meyer. That's how you check your produce. I don't know. Now, mind you, if the reports are correct and he is drunk like they said he was, maybe he just wasn't thinking and just grabbed it and went out the door. Maybe he thought we're, there's a chance we might go shoot pool. Right. I don't know, but but let's if he if he's going to Meyer and that's the only reason for him to be picked up in the first place, why take the pool cue? Why does he need to go back to Janet's briefly while these other two are dropped off? It almost feels like to me, like we have some missing time from this individual's timeline. And then we have other people around him that are trying their best to fill in the blanks to fill in those gaps. They just don't know where the gaps are or what, or what they should be filling it in with. Yeah. Because there's a part of you, if your friend was being questioned for a murder where maybe you're 
your gut is telling you my friend wouldn't murder somebody maybe he gets violent every now and then maybe he does some stupid stuff but he's not going to murder somebody you try to fudge your story a little bit to help out your buddy i will say this captain is the best person in the world janet and david and a lot of these individuals here that we're talking about and we're questioning their movements we're questioning their statements Right. At least early on in the investigation, all of them appear to be attempting to cooperate with the investigation and cooperate with police. And I say this in the sense of there there were searches that were going on of these people's homes and their vehicles. And everything I saw, Captain, says that these were consensual searches, that the police didn't have to work too hard to get permission to right. go in and search the place. So that's one in the favor of all of these individuals. Now of those searches, one of them in particular of interest was a consensual search of Janet's home and her car. This takes place on November, on November 12th. The search of her vehicle revealed a floor mat, which lit up for traces of blood. A claw hammer was found under the driver's seat, which had, according to Dr. Norton's, Measurements given in the autopsy, the report states that, or at least some believe that the claw hammer that was found in her vehicle, that the measurements are similar, that they align with those of the measurements given by the good doctor. So these items are seized, of course, and then that's when Janet is brought back in for a follow-up interview. Well, look, I, I hate to bring this up. All the time, and I know you can't use them in a court of law, but this would be a great time to get a barometer of if people are telling the truth because we have people telling stories that don't line up. If I was law enforcement, I'm pulling out the old lie detector so I can get a sense of who's telling me the truth or just to start scaring people into telling me the correct story. Here's a couple things, and this is where the story gets even more confusing. So, the first thing that the police want to know, and you can tell they've kind of really honed in on David at this point, even right. though we find this incriminating possible evidence in Janet's vehicle. So one of the first questions they want to know is, hey, do you ever let this guy drive your vehicle? Janet says, no, no, she did not ever let David drive her vehicle and goes on to say he has his own vehicle. He can use his own vehicle. And then to further along that story, she says that they actually had an argument because on that Thursday night, she at some point prior to Thursday gives David $30 so that he could go and get tags for his car. He spent the 30 bucks on something else, doesn't get the tags for his vehicle and ask Janet if if he could borrow her tags from her car. Because he's a dumbass. She grants him permission. Of course, they're in an argument because, hey, what'd you do with the money I gave you? Because he's a dumbass. Now she's mad. She wants her tags back, rightfully so. She says that David gave them back to her on Friday. So detectives, of course, have a lot of questions about him, a lot of questions about his car, a lot of questions about her car. But the questions that I think are the most important from the interview, Sergeant Deskins asked Janet, Was there any work done on your car last Thursday? Janet, last Thursday? No. Sergeant Deskins, was any work done on your car last Friday? Janet, no. 
Deskins follows up. Okay, Saturday. And the answer from Janet is no. All right, I want everybody to remember that because on the 13th, Jerry Johnson, a very good friend of David Seelock's and Janet's, tells police that he was replacing the brakes in Janet's car on the day of the murder and he cut his hand and bled. He did not know had, sorry, he did not know he had bled inside of Janet's vehicle. He said that he just noticed it. He just noticed the cut when he was finished with the work and he washed up. Bullshit. And then police are now asking this Jerry guy and Janet, hey, was your vehicle operational on Thursday night? To which Jerry is telling police, no, that vehicle was not operational because it had no brakes. I was fixing the brakes. It was parked overnight at someone else's home. And we his name is on record saying that this Jerry guy was going to do the work first thing in the morning. I know they're young, but this is loser. Janet takes off the tags, gives them to David for him to use. And then he gives the tags back on Friday afternoon. And now the vehicle is working again. We can base that off of the situation of she's walking in groceries when she's notified on Friday that, uh, or I'm sorry, when she is notified on that Friday or Saturday that Tracy Harkness was killed. Right. So this is, this is where none of this portion of the case makes any sense. You can see what appears to be, oh, there, there's never been any work done on my car. Wait, we found blood in your car. Oh, test the blood though. Now all of a sudden there's been work that was done and it was the mechanic guy helping me out that probably bled inside of my car. And he's presenting that information to the police. And then you right. have the weird situation of the trading back and forth of the pla- of the tags or plates off of Janet's vehicle all during the time in question here. And then you have David Seelock's timeline not lining up with that of the people at the bar or Janet's or Randy's. It's, again, I think what we have here is I think we have a situation of someone, some ones are covering for somebody else trying to fill in those blanks and those gaps. They just don't know a, what do the police know that we don't know? We don't know what gaps to fill in, what lies to create. And none of these lies that are creating are covering anybody else's tracks along the way. Right. But you'd think, like I said, if you have this mat that's filled of blood, you test the blood. If it's, if it's Tracy's blood, then Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Well, that's what's even more weird. They run tests on the blood. It comes back. It's not human blood. Hmm. So why? This is what I don't understand. Why is this guy lying for them? Right. Either somebody's lying here because either work, yes, was done and you chose to lie about it or work wasn't done and he chose to help you out and lie about it. But why create the lie at all? If you're not trying to cover up Tracy's blood. Right. And then you have this weapon that is a, is a possible murder weapon, a tool that is possibly a murder weapon. But then again, there's no blood or evidence that that connects that tool to Tracy Tracy Harkness or to the murder. Yeah. But we also have evidence or it seems that we have some kind of evidence 
that somebody tried to clean something up. There was some paper towels or some towels. And is it possible they get into this altercation? This murder goes down. The person then decides to wipe their arm down because they got blood on their arm. Oh, I got I to gotta make sure that I clean off the blood. And then I got to clean up this, this mess on, on this weapon. And now I got to leave. But to me, I don't know if this evidence found in her car points to Janet more than it, I feel it almost points more to Janet than it does to, to David. Well, you would think so because she's saying, one, it's her car, and two, that, that she never let him use her vehicle. I think the better question is, did he have access to it? Not, did you let him use it, but does he have access? Does he know how to, you know, if she fell asleep, could he take the vehicle? The thing here, though, let's let's pretend for a minute that we know, and we don't know this, but let's pretend for a minute that we know that she was only killed by one person. And only that one person may know the details of the time that they went to her apartment, the time that they left her apartment, how long they were at Tracy's apartment, where they went where they came from and where they went afterwards. Let's pretend that only one person knows that. Why in the situation would a bunch of people be lying to the police and coming up with these stories that don't, that conflict with one another? These stories conflict with one another. To me, that's because that's because they don't know the details. If, if I'm your friend and you ask me to lie for you, or if for some reason I believe, Hey, I would be helping out the captain here. I don't know what happened. He's probably innocent of everything. He's a good guy, but don't do that. Turn, turn on me, but, oh, I should probably, you know, I might have to fib a little bit or exaggerate a little bit. What I keep going back to is that clearly somebody's lying to police because the stories conflict. All these stories cannot be true. It's physically impossible. Hold on. Hold on one second though, because I think sometimes it goes back to your theory you say lazy or stupid, right? But sometimes it's it's liar or stupid. And there's sometimes, look, there, there could be a good possibility that law enforcement is asking these people a few days later, and these people don't have much of a life. They run here and there and everywhere. We went to this bar, we did this. And they don't know exactly what time it was or what time somebody left. And so it it is possible that some people are giving misinformation, but they don't even know it's misinformation. It's just the best they could do. It was the best answer that they could give law enforcement. I don't think that holds any water at all. And I I do want to clear something up because I think you got my credos wrong here. So Lazy or stupid, I put that on police and on detectives. When I see a problem oh, I with an investigation, that. I say say it's either either lazy or stupid in some situations. When it comes to the flip side of that coin, suspects and people that may have been involved in a crime, it's one of these situations, if not all of them, is just another great example of either stupid or liar. Right. And and I think what, what I'm getting at here, though, the reason why I don't think that we can give them the benefit of the doubt saying 
look, they're just, they're just dumb. They just don't know. They don't know what really happened that day. They they're confused about what happened that day. Here, here's pretty clear cut liar or stupid to me. You're asked three times if you had any work done on your vehicle. Right. Every single time you say no. Did you have any work done on your vehicle on Thursday? No. Friday? No. Saturday? No. And then we found blood in your car, and now all of a sudden it's followed up with this Jerry person coming out of the coming out of the woodwork saying that, hey, I was fixing the brakes on her car. Both of those things didn't happen. Two people didn't get so confused in, in this world that we live in that one of them saying now that I worked on the vehicle and the other ones said originally, no, there was no work done on my vehicle. Right. So again, I don't know who is being covered up for. What I do know is this David Sealock's timeline is a problem and it's only a problem for David Sealock. But it's also a problem because he has violent tendencies and he had no place to stay. And so there's motive for him to go back to ex-girlfriend's house to go, hey, can I stay here? Again, like you said, doesn't have to be premeditated. But then he goes to stay and he goes, hey, let me stay here. No, no, we're done. We're we're through. I got to work in the morning. You need to go. And now he's not getting in his way. And just what, what happened earlier that day? Things weren't going his way. And this dumbass decides to fight a wall with his head. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that he tries to, hey, I'll sleep on the couch. No, it's not happening. Well, why can't you help me? Nobody else is staying on the couch. Just let me stay on the couch. Oh, now I'm not going to fight the wall. I'm going to fight you. And that's a, a very real possibility. The other thing that's tricky here too, Captain, is remember we talked about where you can kind of start your belief of when do we have the time of death? What time did that occur? And we would probably say that your earliest window there would be probably 1040 PM because everyone's saying that Tracy left the party at 1030 ish. We know that it takes 10 minutes approximately to get from the party to Tracy's apartment. Now we have people at friendly saying that David left as early as nine 30. We have him saying on the flip side that I left at 10 30, 11 or 11 30. Only the killer knows what time that they need to cover their butt for. If he left at the earlier part of that, where did he go? If he is the killer, where did he go for that time period? Because it's only a 15 minute drive from friendlies to Tracy's apartment. Now keep in mind, we do have people that have him at the bar as late as 10 15, which that aligns a little bit more with what I believe the police suspicions were of David's timeline in comparison to Tracy's timeline. Right. That's a, that's a very good point. So we should point out, though, that of all these people that are interviewed, while there were rumors that some people may have known or heard who killed Tracy, I couldn't find anybody that's on this short list of persons of interest, what we are calling persons of interest, that 
was openly accusing somebody else on that list of having committed this murder. In fact, everyone's saying quite the opposite in regard to other persons on this list. When asked by police, they're saying, no, he or she would not have done this. They're not that type of person. They would never attack somebody or intentionally kill someone. The weird thing, though, to circle back to that, we found this in your car and your car wasn't worked on. Now it was worked on. The thing here, though, Captain, is why is that lie created? Just because... They didn't find anything incriminating in your, in your vehicle still does not explain away why a lie was created. Thanks for listening and joining us for part three one more part to go one more part to wrap this up colonel do we have any recommended reading for the listeners how about some recommended viewing go and check us out on youtube and subscribe to our youtube channel that's true crime garage tv we have close to 500 videos on there for your viewing pleasure yeah our goal is in the next month to have all of our episodes available on YouTube because we understand that some people prefer to listen on YouTube and what a great day to binge true crime garage episode four should be available by the time you're done with this one. So happy Turkey day and happy binge day and be good, be kind and don't litter. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.